Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 27. So we come to the Lord's Supper this morning. The Lord's instruction is that we remember his death until he comes. So this morning I want us to, again, intentionally turn our attention to Jesus dying. Not, not just his wonderful life and teaching. Not even just his glorious resurrection and, and triumphant reign. We're to focus on his death on the cross. Christianity is curious in this regard. For what would seem to be the darkest moment in our history is the subject of our constant remembrance. But the crucifixion of Jesus was a bloody, gory, humiliating miscarriage of justice in which the author of our faith hung on the cross, executed like a common criminal. One might think we would hesitate to even mention such an ugly thing. But this is not a skeleton in the closet for us. This is our greatest cause of joy. This is the basis of of our family gathering. This is the subject of our constant discussion, the focus of our songs, the comfort for us in our darkest hours. So as we prepare our hearts to eat the Lord's Supper together, I want you to come back with me to the hill of Golgotha and survey survey with me again the crucifixion of Jesus. Consider the implications of that event for our salvation. Matthew 27, verses 32 uh, to 44. Let me read it. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named, named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed a written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the Son of God. In the same way the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. This morning, I'm not going to even try to exhaust everything that's in these verses, but simply uh, to grasp... Uh, one truth and that's this Jesus loves you to death Jesus loves you to death we Americans love displays of power it's part of our national identity I think every 4th of July we blow things up you know big spectacular displays of firepower 
But in this text, we see something more impressive than a display of power. There's no display of power here. But there's a great display of love here. Here we see in the most profound ways that Jesus loves us to death. I think we can see this most impressively when we consider the mocking that Jesus endured as he hung on the cross dying. These taunts came from strangers passing by, came from the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders of Israel, the leaders, even came from the criminals who were crucified with him. Four of those taunts are recorded here, and that's what I'd like to focus on. Four taunts. The first one is found in verse 40. It's a taunt concerning the temple. <clears throat> you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Now let's think about this taunt for a moment. Jesus had indeed said something about the temple. Not actually what they repeated. They distorted it a bit. What Jesus actually had said what is, that, is that if they destroyed this temple of which he meant his body, that he would raise it up again the third day. Now they mock. You talk about having the power to rebuild the temple. You can't even deliver yourself from destruction, let alone take care of the temple. But you see, in reality, Jesus is the temple of God. In Colossians, we read, In him, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. Jesus is the reality of which the Shekinah glory of God that dwelt over the holy place of the Old Testament. He's the reality of which that spoke. When Jesus was born, John wrote of him, The word became flesh and tabernacled. That's the old word for the temple. Tabernacled among us. And they called his name Emmanuel. God with us. Jesus was indeed the very presence of God in the midst of his, of his temple, of his people. The temple in Jerusalem was only a poor shadow. Jesus was the reality of God dwelling with his people. Oh, they may mock but Jesus could show them about God's temple, about God's presence. Is that what they want? Do they want to see a display of God's presence? Remember how they were afraid to enter into the most holy place. Only the high priest could go there. But he wore bells in case uh, he, it stopped moving. They could pull him out if he died in the presence of God. They trembled to be in the presence of the Holy One. And now they would dare to challenge the one who is the Holy One in their midst. Perhaps you remember the special effects of the old movie uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark when the ark was finally opened and everything in its presence melted down. That's a poor rough sketch of what it, would be, what it would be like for the holy God to suddenly appear in all of his holiness in the midst of sinners. So Jesus could show them what the presence of God's holiness looked like. It wouldn't be pretty. Oh, but he didn't. He restrained any display of his holiness. 
For you see, Jesus was concerned for you and me, for those he had chosen his own. He was not concerned to vindicate himself, to prove that he is the holy presence, the temple of God. He was only concerned that we might be able to stand in the presence of God someday. He could have shown the power of his presence, but then there would have been no one left standing. And then you and I would be lost too forever banned, not just from some earthly temple, but from the very presence of the Lord. And so Jesus stayed on the cross. He endured their taunts and answered nothing back. He didn't vindicate himself. He let them think evil of us, of him. Why? Because Jesus loved you to death. Or consider the second tongue. This one challenges his sonship. Verse 40. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. Verse 43. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. Think about this taunt for a moment. They were saying, what father wouldn't come to his son's aid? You say God is your father, but he doesn't seem to be uh, doing anything. He doesn't seem to recognize you as his son. Perhaps you're self-deceived, Jesus. Could it be that he's not your father after all? Oh, and the people probably felt vindicated as they said this. God must be on their side because, look, nothing is happening. Jesus is just hanging there dying. This is no son of God, they thought. Oh, but consider what we know to be true. He is the son of God. Actually, Jesus didn't go around calling himself the Son of God. He called himself the Son of Man. It was God the Father who on several occasions spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Jesus is God's Son. He had known perfect union with the Father from eternity past. He always dwelt in perfect relationship with his Father. They may feel vindicated, but only because they ignore the evidence. The truth is they are wrong. He is the one whom God called his eternal son. So perhaps Jesus should just show them. Want to see how angry a father can get? Will the omnipotent father who knows perfect unbroken intimacy with his son for all eternity not answer his son's plea to deliver him from his enemies? Doesn't the scripture promise that the, the Lord hears the cry of the righteous? Who's more righteous than the son? You fathers know what I mean. How long will you let the neighborhood bullies bully your son? Here comes their dad. That's a sound of terror amongst the bullies. But again, Jesus shows restraint. He never calls on his father to deliver him. For you see, Jesus was there for the sake of you and me. For we are not naturally God's children. We are by nature the children of wrath, born in sin, fallen, cursed, estranged, outside the family, orphaned, taken captive by Satan. What hope do we ever have to be children of God? How could we ever be born anew? How could we ever be adopted into God's family? We have only one hope. That the true son would take our place of condemnation and give us his place of approval. 
that Jesus would lay down his life as a ransom to buy us back. But if Jesus calls on his Father to deliver him, proving that he is indeed the Son of God, our only hope is lost forever. And so, as the book of Hebrews tells us, for the joyful goal of bringing many more sons and daughters into glory, Jesus ignored the shame endured the pain and stayed on the cross. In spite of his natural human will to survive, in spite of that drive within a person that rises to unbelievable heights when our lives are threatened, in spite of all that, Jesus' love overcame his will to survive and he hung there until he died. Jesus loved you to death. Third thought. This one challenges Jesus' ability to save. In the beginning of verse 42, they said he saved others. He can't save himself. Think about this for a moment. They were saying, what kind of savior is this? Look at him. He's helpless. He has no power. He's a weakling. How can he go around saying he could help other people when the chips are down? He can't even help himself. Now you would think that they would have known this truth by now, for the truth is Jesus did save, deliver others. He repeatedly healed the sick. He made blind people see. He cured lepers. He made the lame to walk. He restored withered hands. He healed people at a distance. Only a few days earlier, he had caused Lazarus to be raised from the dead. Not only that, Jesus had proven his power over nature. He had turned water into wine. He had calmed the wind and the waves with his voice. He had miraculously fed 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch, and on another occasion, 4,000 more. The truth is, he was never helpless. He had proven himself omnipotent like his father. So did they really want to see a display of his power to save? Well, just watch this. Watch him as he pulls those nails right out of the cross. Watch him as this mountain shakes. Watch as he turns the cross into a pile of toothpicks. Watch as armed Roman soldiers cower in fear at the power of the one who, who, who displayed, uh, uh, who created power as, uh, against their little primitive swords. Oh, but wait. What about the salvation of his people? What about you? What about me? How could we ever escape the wrath of God if he brought instant wrath on his enemies that day? For if that became judgment day, no one would be left standing. And so, on that crucifixion day, Jesus chose to stay on the cross and become the Savior rather than proving his power and authority as the judge. The gauntlet was thrown down and he refused to pick it up. For he was suffering to bear the sins of his people that we might be saved. For this reason, he said he had come to seek and to save those who are lost. And so he persisted on that course, hanging there, looking helpless, not powerless to save himself, 
but with his love restraining his power, Jesus loved you to death. Finally, the fourth taunt. It was about him being king, the end of verse 42. They said, he's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we'll believe in him. Here they were saying, hey, he wants us to believe in him. Here's the opportunity. Show us some kingly power, and we'll fall at your feet, Jesus. Give us something to believe in, and we'll follow you. Oh, but what kind of king is this who lets himself be defeated and hung on a cross by the Romans? Where's your army, O king? But they ignore the truth. Jesus had faced this before, you know. Remember, Satan promised him all the kingdoms of the world if he would only just worship him. And Jesus said, no, he refused. When he had fed the 5,000, they tried to take him and make him a king. They liked the free food, and he refused. Still, he is the king. He is the creator of heaven and earth. He is the one who sustains all things by his power. He is the one to whom is given all authority and all power in heaven and on earth. He is the Lord's anointed one. He is David's son, the heir of the throne. He is the king of glory, the Lord of hosts. Do they really want to see this king in action? Are they daring him to make his rule known? Well, watch this, as 10,000 times 10,000 angels are deployed to destroy the enemies of God's king. Didn't Psalm 2 talk about that? There we read that God who sits in the heavens laughs at the petty uh, revolt of the leaders of Israel and the kings of the Gentiles. Do they... Who do they think they are? No one can stop God's king. So stand clear, this king is about to rule with an iron fist, like Psalm 2 says. Oh, but wait. Again, Jesus shows restraint. He's not concerned about his right to rule. He's concerned about his subjects. How would any of them be left if he did this holy house-cleaning Who would be left? You? Me? None of us. You see, there could only be an eternal holy kingdom if the king first delivers his subjects from sin and death and from the tyrant who holds them captive. Oh, he could create a whole new world in an instant if he wanted, but in love he sets out to redeem the one he created that was in rebellion against him. And so the king of glory became the man of sorrows, not only taking the form of a servant born as a man, but then as a man enduring the humiliation of death on a cross. And so Jesus hung there, the perfect king in the place of his sinful subjects. He hung there mocked and taunted, his beard pulled out in disrespect, Filthy, wretched, spit, dripping down his blood-stained face. He hung there, held on that cross by only one power. The power of his love for you and me. Jesus loved us to death. 
if we saw some display of Jesus' power, perhaps we would just believe him and follow him. But dear people, we've seen even more. We've seen just Jesus display the power of his love as the temple of his body was destroyed that we might know God's presence as the eternal son learned, experienced suffering that we might become the sons of God. As the mighty deliverer refused to deliver himself that we might be saved from wrath to come. And as the righteous, sovereign king was humiliated because of our sin, that we might enter the kingdom of God. As Johann Herrmann wrote over 350 years ago, what punishment so strange is suffered yonder? The shepherd dies for sheep who love to wander. The master pays the debt his servants owe him who would not know him. The sinless son of God must die in sadness. The sinful child of man may live in gladness. Man forfeited his life and is acquitted. And God is committed. They said they would believe if they saw his power displayed. The question is, how will we respond now that we've seen his love displayed? For that's what we celebrate this morning. That on the cross, Jesus loved us to death. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, when things go wrong, we so quickly put you on trial and wonder why you don't care about us. Why you haven't displayed your power in our lives. So we thank you for the reminder that even in regard to your own suffering, you you restrained your power because of your love for us and that your love for us is not in question whether we understand what you're doing or not. This we know, that you loved us all the way to death. Help us to remember that, to not malign you, to not question you, to not rebel against you, to not lose hope in you, but to rest secure in the great love of our Savior. In his name we pray, amen.